Thank you, choir. Makes you ready for heaven, doesn't it? Uh, We'll stand around the throne singing holy, holy, holy. With all of creation worshiping, all the nations worshiping the God, the Savior who came and rescued us, the Lamb who sits on the throne. One who looks as a lamb who had been slain because he had been slain for us. What glory, what honor, what might, what power, what majesty, what splendor belongs to our great God. Join me in prayer. Father, tune our hearts to your word. Help us to hear your voice today as you speak to us through your holy word. that You have so graciously given to us. Father, we worship you. We praise you. Would you be honored in the way that we study your word this morning? Father, not just in the way we study it, but Father, in our obedience to your word, the things that you would call us to do as a result of our time spent together studying what you have said, continue to say, and will continue to say to us your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Missions. You thought I was going to say sing, didn't you? That's what you thought. Missions. That's not wrong, though. We're going to talk about singing. But I want to start with missions. What is missions? It is the task of taking the gospel of Jesus to those who have never heard. The task of taking the gospel of Jesus to those who have never heard. Let me give you another word. Worship. What is worship? What's your definition of worship? Let me give you a couple of ways to think about it. We could say that worship is a glad-hearted submission to God as king. Worship is a glad-hearted submission to God as king. Or we could say it this way. Worship is joyful and honest declaration of the ultimate worthiness of God to be praised. Worship is joyful and honest declaration of the ultimate worthiness of God to be praised. So missions, taking the good news of Jesus to those who have never heard, and worship, singing and bringing the praises of God to God, ascribing to Him ultimate worth, missions and worship. I want to give you a really short sentence not a sentence that I came up with. Others have said it before. And I just want you to think about it for just a moment. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. <clears throat> think about that phrase for just a moment. I'm going to say it one more time. Missions exist because worship doesn't. I think that's a true statement. And I think as we walk through our passage today, we're going to see that that's very much the case, that missions exist because worship doesn't. In fact, today we want to see how our worship of God fuels our obedience to the mission of God, who is right now gathering for himself worshipers from every nation, tribe, and language. We want to see how our worship of God, and that includes singing, 
fuels our obedience to the mission of God, who is gathering for himself right now. God is gathering for himself worshipers of himself from every nation and tribe and language. So a few weeks ago, we talked about singing God's glory to yourself from Psalm chapter 92. Then a couple of weeks ago, we talked about singing God's glory to your family from Psalm chapter 145. And last week, we were in Psalm chapter 95, and we learned about singing God's glory to your church, to yourself, to your family, to your church. And today, in Psalm chapter 96, we want to see and learn about singing God's glory to the nations. Sing God's glory to to the nations. Just to give us a little bit of context of Psalm chapter 96 as you are turning there in your copy of God's Word. If you'll think about the previous Psalm, which we were in last week, Psalm 95, it said, Come, let us sing to the Lord. In the immediate context of Psalm 95, that us was the nation of Israel. That us was the nation of Israel. So if you'll put yourself in the Israelites' shoes for just a moment, and they gathered to worship. And they, in Psalm 95, would have said, Come, let us, Israelites, sing and praise and worship God. But what Psalm chapter 96 does is it expands the worship in Psalm chapter 95 from one people to all the peoples of the earth. So Psalm 95, Come, let us make, uh, sing to the Lord and make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And we get to Psalm chapter 96 we're going to see that it's not just one nation that should be worshiping God. It is all the nations. And so if you will, follow along in your copy of God's Word, Psalm chapter 96, as I read. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And give you one statement today, kind of summarize this psalm. It will be this We must sing God's glory to the nations so they will join us in worshiping God. We must sing God's glory to the nations so they will join us in worshiping God. Missions exist because worship doesn't. There are people in our world who aren't worshiping the one true God, and so missions exist so that those people can begin to worship the one true God. And we as God's people are the vehicle through which uh, the message of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, will get to those who need to hear about it so they can join us in worshiping the one true God. 
There must be a missionary purpose behind our worship. There must be a missionary purpose behind our worship and included in our worship of God is our singing to God. There is actually a missionary purpose in our singing. I want you to notice uh, just with me, observe a few things in Psalm chapter 96 before we dive in. Notice the commands that we see, the commands to sing, to tell, and to declare in verses 1, 2, and 3. Three times the command to sing, and then the command to tell, and then the command to declare. What is the goal of this singing and telling, declaring? The goal is more singing, more praise, more glory being given to, more worship being given to, more rejoicing in the one true God. That is the goal. So the command is to sing, and the goal is to sing. The command is to worship, and the goal is to worship. What we are looking for and what we are desiring is a multiplication of worshipers of God. We want worshipers to be singing the praises of God all around the globe from many nations, tribes, and languages. Who is the audience of this worship? It is Yahweh, the one true God. You see the word Lord there, for great is the Lord in verse 4 and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. That's the one true God we learn about in the Bible. And who are the participants of this worship? The audience is God, but who are the participants? There's three words uh, that we see here throughout this psalm that are very key to understanding uh, the, the main point. And that is three groups of people, three ways to describe the peoples of the earth. You'll see the word nations repeated. You'll see the word peoples repeated. And you'll see the word families. Nations, peoples, and families. So, singing God's glory to the nations. I want to share three truths with you. Verses 1 through 6, we find this. Our singing should declare to the nations the glory of God. Our singing should declare to the nations the glory of God. You'll notice there in verses 1 through 3, you'll sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. By the way, I'm not going to focus on this, but in case you're wondering, sing to the Lord a new song, does that mean every time we sing, we're supposed to sing a brand new song and we can never sing the same song again? No. I think it does mean it's okay to sing new songs, but the main point here is that the, 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 the worthiness of God is so unique and we experience it in different ways each and every day that even an old song that we sing has fresh meaning as we grow in our walk with the Lord. One writer put it this way, fresh mercies demand fresh expression of thanksgiving. I love that. Fresh mercies demand fresh expression of thanksgiving. Scripture says that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. And so I may sing a song that I sang yesterday, but today I, I'm just even more in love with God, and I'll, hopefully I'm singing that same song with an even greater passion to God. But God intended from the beginning of the nation of Israel, and remember these Psalms were, this is the, this, the book of Psalms, the psalm book of the nation of Israel. This was, their, this was their song book. This is where they went to to sing praises to the Lord. God intended from the beginning of the nation of Israel to use the nation of Israel as a mouthpiece to declare his glory to all nations and in so doing to gather all the nations around his throne and worship. Listen, God's purpose in choosing Israel and he chose Abraham back in Genesis, uh, it was not just so he would have one nation. It was through choosing this nation and, and then teaching them about who he was and is 
that then he intended to spread his glory, spread his fame, spread the knowledge of him, spread the worship of him throughout all the nations. Israel was to be a mouthpiece of the glory of God to the nations. The nations were supposed to be able to look at Israel and say, wow, that's the one true God, the God that they worship. We see here that singing is a means of being this mouthpiece for God. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. In other words, don't keep it to yourself. Singing is a means of telling and declaring the glory of God. And we see here in verses 1 through 6 two different ways that God's glory is, is seen, two different aspects of God's glory that we want to make sure that we sing to the nations, that we declare to the nations. The first aspect of God's glory is this. God's glory is seen in his creating and saving works, in his creating and saving works. You skip down to verse 5 for just a moment. We have this phrase at the end, but the Lord made the heavens. And then if you'll go ahead and skip on down to verse 11 and 12, we see all of creation rejoicing. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy. There's definitely a creation aspect of this psalm. It's recognizing that God, the one true God, is the creator of all things. Those marvelous works of God's creation. We can see with our eyes, we can hear, we can feel, we can smell, we walk outside and and, and we give glory and honor to him because of his great work of creation. But it's not just his work of creation that we want to declare to the nations. In fact, if we're honest, they can see God's work of creation without us telling them about it. It's called general revelation. You know, scripture says that we're without excuse before God because we can look in into creation and know that there is a God. We are without excuse. We can't say, well, I didn't know that there was a a God. We look at creation and we can see that. The other part of the, the, the great works of God's glory that, that unless we go and share it with others, others will not know is God's saving works. Notice verse 2. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his salvation from day to day. What did that look like for the nation of Israel? What great work of salvation would they have shared from day to day? Were they supposed to share from day to day? We could probably think about all sorts of ways that God rescued them and protected them and provided for them throughout their history. But I'm sure the one that is coming to your mind uh, most clearly is God's deliverance of the nation of Israel from Egypt, right? The salvation of them, where he bought them out of slavery and, and he brought them to himself. And that work of salvation, they were to not just remember it, but they were to declare it. How often? From day to day, from day to day, from day to day, they were to be speaking about the mighty saving work of God. But now on this side of the cross, we don't just declare and speak about the saving work of God that time in Egypt when God rescued Israel from Egypt. We get to speak about an even greater, more marvelous work of salvation. And that work is the good news of Jesus Christ. When he came and he worked salvation for us. 
when He went to the cross and He bore our wrath for our sin upon Himself. He was cursed as He was hung on the cross. He was cursed by His Father. And we were the ones who deserved the curse. We are the ones who are under the curse. And God saves us through Jesus as we repent of our sins and place our faith in Him. A mighty work of salvation. God's glory is seen in His creating and His saving works. And we are to declare that to the nations. The second way that we see God's glory here in verses 1 through 6 is in His supremacy over all gods. God's glory is seen in His supremacy over all gods. Notice verse 4. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Now, I said this last week, but I'll repeat it again. I'm not a polytheist, and I don't think the psalmist is, in the sense that we believe that there are many real gods. But in one sense, we do believe that there are many gods. There's a whole slew of false gods, and there is one true God. There is one true God, but we, we must recognize that we are surrounded by false gods, and so were the people of Israel. In fact, the nations that they are to be declaring the glory of God to were worshiping false gods. Notice how these gods are described in verse 5. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. A strong language there. In fact, if we were to read that in the Hebrew, there would be a unique play on words that we would see from the word God to the word that's translated idols or worthless idols. It's Elohim is the word for God, and Elohim is the word used for idols or worthless idols. And so there's a word play that would have would have drawn attention to that. It would have stuck in their minds as they read this. These Elohim are Elohim. These Elohim are Elohim. They would have remembered that. Here's a way to put that into English um, that, uh, that I didn't come up with this. Uh, I'm not creative enough to come up with this, uh, but, uh, but, but someone did, and so I wanted to share this with you. you, could, you to get the wordplay, you could say it this way. These mighty beings are mighty useless. These mighty beings are mighty useless. This is one of those phrases that kind of sticks in your mind, right? And, that's, and, and we kind of have to play around with it because we're not reading it in Hebrew. Um, and, and so these mighty beings are mighty useless. Hey, nations, hey, peoples of the world, these, these gods that you are worshiping, that you think are mighty, they are mighty useless. They are worthless because they don't even exist. They're not real. Isaiah, we find strong words about idolatry. Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And then he talks about the worthlessness of idols. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. 
Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The worthlessness of idols. What can this man-made thing do for you? Can this man-made thing save you from your sin? No. So when we put our hope in the things of this world, we're putting our hope in things that cannot save us from our sin. As we'll talk about in just a moment, our sin separates us from a holy God. Our greatest need in life is to be rescued from our sins. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. God says this, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And neither should we. But there are people who are, and they need to know that God is the one who is worthy of glory. The Lord, Yahweh, God, revealed to us in Scripture, the creator of heaven and earth. The one who has purchased our salvation, he alone is worthy of worship. You say, we don't live in a society like that where there's idols and people making idols and those kinds of things and worshiping false gods. Oh, but we do. Oh, but we do. We can look around and see all the things that we place ultimate value on in our lives. What drives you? What gets you up in the morning? What are you striving for and trying to achieve? What are you spending your life on? What are those things that bring joy or at least a a, a sense of temporary joy to your heart and to your life? What are the things that you love talking about the most? What are the things that you invest your time and your energy and your money into? You see, we can look at our lives and we can tell who our gods actually are. We can come in here on a Sunday and we can sing about the glory of God, but if we're not careful, we'll walk out of here and we will worship the things of this world. But even even, even idolatry like we see here is becoming more and more prevalent in our society today. Literal worshiping of idols, like literal statues. There's a headline in The Atlantic article with this headline came out March 7, 2019. You ready? Why so many Americans are turning to Buddhism. I read the entire article. And it's interesting because the article tries to make a distinction between some of the practices of Buddhism and actually worshiping Buddha. But I can pretty much guarantee you that the longer someone engages in some practices of Buddhism, the more likely they will be to bow down and worship Buddha. I've stood in a Buddhist temple and watched people bowing down to a statue made of metal. I've seen it with my own eyes. And it's all around us, and it's becoming more and more prevalent here in our own society. The people here... Our nation, this nation needs to know that there is no God but the one true God. And so do the nations all around the world. We said a moment ago that people can look and see creation. They can see that. People are within, within the sound of creation's voice. But they can't just look at creation and see 
that God has sent His Son to rescue them from their sin. And so, we could ask this question, people are within the sound of creation's voice, but are they within the sound of believers' voices? In other words, they're not going to know what God has done for them unless we go and share that with them. People are within the sound of the message of creation, but are they within the sound of the message of salvation? And that leads to truth number two. Our singing should call the nations to worship God. Our singing should call the nations to worship God. So in verses 1 through 6, we are to declare to the nations that God is the one true God, that he is worthy of glory. But here's the invitation. We don't just get to say, hey, you're wrong. You're worshiping the wrong God. We get to say, now let me invite you to come and worship the one true God. We don't just look and say, you're worshiping the wrong God. Sorry, there's no hope for you. Verses 7 and seven through 9, we get to say, hey, you're worshiping the wrong true God, but guess what? You can come and you can worship the one true God. God has made a way for all the nations of the, wor- of the world to worship. We get this word families here. This word families, not necessarily meaning like a mom and a dad and a their children, brothers and sisters, a little bit bigger grouping than that. It could be translated as like clans. So a smaller grouping than a whole nation, a little bit, a little bit bigger grouping than a family that we think of today. These families of the earth, these tribes, these clans of the earth, these people groups throughout the earth, we get to call them and our singing should call them to worship the one true God. We do this in three ways, and I'm going to say these fairly quickly. We want to call the nation to worship God by helping them give God the proper place. Giving Him the proper place. Notice verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. We want to give God first place, and we want to call the nations to do that in their own lives. To forsake those false gods that we read about back in verses 4 and 5. And to worship the Lord who in verse 6 is described as splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Verse 8, the glory is due his name. And we want to call people to place God in first place in their lives. He is the weightiest of all. The word glory literally means heavy. That's what the word glory means. It means to be heavy with, with worthiness to be worshipped. And the weightiness of God when measured against all other gods far outweighs all other gods in his worthiness to be worshipped. We want to call the nations to that, to give him the proper place. But also, we get to call the nations to enter into his presence. We get to call the nations to enter into his presence. I love this. This is amazing because in the day and time when this psalm was written, the, the, the Gentiles were not allowed to go into the temple of God. In fact, in, in, at one point in time, there was a court of the Gentiles, and it was the very outermost section of the temple. But that was as far as the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, could go. So the nations could come 
to the temple, and God wanted them to come, but they could only go just a little bit into the presence of God. Only the Jews got to take the next step into into the really the temple where some of the action took place, some of the sacrifices and those kinds of things. And then only the high priest got to go into the innermost section of the temple. And even then, only one day a year. See, here's what the beauty of verse 8, bring an offering and come into his courts. Here's the beauty of it. That God is holy and we are not. And so we should be barred from the presence of God forever. You and me, we're Gentiles. We should be barred from the presence of God forever. There should be no hope of us ever entering into the glorious presence of God because of our sin. But God has made a way. And so he invites the Gentiles and we get to invite the nations into the presence of God to Number three, participate in his holiness. As we call the nations to worship God, we're calling them to participate in his holiness. Say, how, how, can, how can we do that? We've been worshiping these false gods. Certainly, if we walk into the presence of God, he will strike us down. That is true unless God allows us to participate with him in his holiness. Notice verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Why do we tremble? Because God is holy and we are sinful. And yet at the same time, we get to come into His presence. Two different ways that you could translate verse 9. You could say that it's, it's worship because of the splendor of His holiness. Or... You could translate that, worship him in holiness. Literally, you could translate it, worship him in holy clothing. Worship God in holy clothing. You say, well, what is holy clothing? Well, it harkens us back to God's instructions for worship in the temple. You had to be holy to enter the presence of a holy God. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 2, we find these instructions given to the priests in God's temple. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You see, Aaron, the high priest, he couldn't just wear whatever he wanted to wear as he walked into the presence of God. He had to wear these clothes that were specially designed. It wasn't anything necessarily unique about the materials, though they were some costly materials. But it's the fact that when he put those on, it was a symbol that God was clothing him in holiness. So here's what that means. When we get the privilege of inviting the nations to come into the presence of God, we have to tell them how. They have to be clothed in holiness, in righteousness. Well, how can we as sinners be clothed in holiness and righteousness? That's right. You're thinking of him. Jesus. Jesus, the one who has exchanged our sin for his righteousness. He who knew no sin, became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we proclaim the good news of salvation to the nations so that they'll know how to be clothed in righteousness and we invite them to enter into the presence of God for all of eternity. The great need of the nations is to be made holy and we know how they can be made holy and it is through 
Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. They're not going to know it unless we go and tell them. Number three, finally. Final final section of this psalm, verse 10 through 13. Our singing should prepare the nations for the reign of God. Our singing should prepare the nations for the reign of God. You see, there's a reason why there's an urgency to this message. There's a reason why there's an urgency to our need to go and share the gospel. There's a reason there's an urgency to the nation's need for us to come to them and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. It's because God reigns and one day He is coming back. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back and He will set up His kingdom and He will reign. Now here's what that means for all creation. God's reign means rejoicing for all creation. Verse 10 says, Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And following that, we find the, all of creation, the heavens, the earth, the sea, the field, the trees, worshiping God. Why is creation worshiping when God reigns? Because all of creation right now is under a curse. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. God cursed the serpent. God cursed Eve. God cursed Adam. And God cursed the ground. The whole earth is under a curse. Paul writes about it in Romans as the earth groaning under the pains of childbirth. They're groaning until the time when Jesus comes. And the curse is lifted once and for all. There's no more sorrow and sickness There's no more thorns growing up out of the ground. The curse is lifted, and so all of creation rejoices with God reigning. At the same time, God's reign means judgment for all peoples. God's reign means judgment for all peoples. Notice several times in this last section of the psalm, He will judge the peoples with equity, verse 10. Verse 13, he comes to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This judgment is a, is, a, is a large word. It's really the rule and government, the reign of God. But part of that reign is punishment of those who rebel against the king. Part of God's rule is punishing those who rebel against him as king. There is a reckoning coming. In verse 10, yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. It's based on the unchanging moral principles that are based on the unchanging character of God. We can be guaranteed that He will judge in equity and in righteousness and in faithfulness. No one will escape the judgment of God. But He's not going to judge in reckless anger, but with a controlled justice. And He's Not going to judge with a reckless love, but with controlled grace. Here's what that means. We don't have to run around life wondering, I wonder what's going to happen to me when God comes back. When Christ returns. I wonder what the outcome is going to be when I stand before God as my judge one day. 
You see, all these gods that the nations worship, they're fickle gods. What that means is they change. They don't ever know if the gods are happy with them or sad with them, or displeased with them or pleased with them. They don't know. They offer these sacrifices. They do these rituals in hopes that the gods will accept them. But not our God. We can know because He is unchanging and He has told us how to worship Him. He has told us what He will accept. He has told us how we can be accepted by Him. And it is through a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we can stand firm on that. We can know that those who meet God, having not trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, will be punished for all of eternity. And by the same token, we can trust that those who meet God and have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation will be received with welcome arms into His presence for all of eternity. Experience life, glorious life, forever with Him. We can rest assured in that. And it will be the same for all peoples. He's not going to treat one nation different than another nation. He will treat us all the same. At the end, there will be many nations, but there will be two groups. Those who have believed in Jesus and those who have not. And he will separate them. And the ones who have not will be cast, as he says, into the lake of fire for all of eternity. And the ones who have believed in Jesus will worship the Lord together with the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, those who belong to God, enjoying His goodness forever and ever and ever. He will judge the peoples with equity, with faithfulness, and with righteousness. Now, question. Are you, you here today, are you ready for that day? Are you ready for the day when God comes and reigns? When Jesus sits upon the throne? Will you be found as a rebel against Him? Or will you be found as a worshiper of Him? Next question. If you are a worshiper of the one true God, what are you doing to make sure that the nations that don't know this Jesus that don't know how to come before Him arrayed in holiness, His holiness and righteousness. What are you, what am I doing to get the message of the glory of God and His message of salvation to those who have never heard? We must tell the world about Jesus. He is the coming King. He is the giver of righteousness. He is the good news of salvation. The nations can prepare for the reign of Jesus by becoming worshipers of Jesus once they hear about the glory of Jesus. And we are the ones to tell them that. Let me give you two things that should we should have in our minds as we think of just practically about our own gatherings on Sunday as we sing. We talked a lot about that last week, but I just want to add two more just kind of practical thoughts. When we gather as a church, does our singing draw people to want to give their lives to the worship of the God that we're singing to? I kind of left this out last week. I wanted to save it for today in Psalm 96. 
there is a missionary purpose behind our singing. In other words, when someone walks through these doors on a Sunday morning and they don't have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, can they look at the way that we sing, can they listen to the way that we sing and say, wow, these people truly are in love with this God. He must be something special. I want to know more about Him. Or do they go, Mm, these people really don't care about this God. I don't think I should either. Does our singing lead people to trust in Jesus? Or does it make them think that ah, it must just be another God? While we sing with joy and passion. And second thought. Do the songs we sing call all nations to worship God? Does our singing draw and attract people to God? And do the songs that we sing declare that God is a God of the nations and not just one nation? See, that's why when we gather on a Sunday morning, we don't sing songs about one nation. What nation would we be tempted to sing songs about? America. And another people in another country might be tempted to sing songs about their country. But we don't sing those songs when we come together in a worship service, worshiping God, because a song about one nation is not good news to another nation. See, when we sing on a Sunday morning, there ought to, there ought, and, and let's just imagine for a moment that there was someone from India and someone from China and someone from Afghanistan and someone from Honduras sitting in our congregation that had never heard about the Lord, they ought to be able to hear our singing and go, wow, not only does this seem like a great God, this is the God that I can serve too. He's the God of all the nations. I don't have to become American just to be accepted by this God. In fact, He's the God of all nations. So we make sure that the songs we sing steer clear of ethnocentricity because ethnocentric singing, that is singing that focuses on one nation undermines the glory of God, which is made known by his ability to gather all the nations of the world in worship of him. I had an opportunity this week to spend a little bit of time with a man that I love dearly. He's a team leader for the International Mission Board in South Asia. He's over mission work in South India, Sri Lanka, and the Maldives. And he shared with us that in that one region, and when you look at a global map, map of the world, it's, it's not that big geographically. In that one region, 296 million people live there. And only 2 to 3% of them, which is about 6 million, know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Of 296 million people in this one area, only about 6 million. That means 290 million people don't know to worship the one true God. And they don't know how to worship the one true God because they don't know about Jesus. About 118 unreached and unengaged people groups in that one area. Those families of the earth that we were talking about a moment ago. 118 of those groups that have never heard of Jesus, and nobody is even telling them about Jesus. In that area, 
Again, we're not talking about the whole globe. We're talking about one area. South India, Sri Lanka, and the Maldives. Every day, 5,784 people die. That's 241 deaths per hour. That's four deaths per minute. Every 60 seconds, just in this one area of our planet, four people are dying, and they don't know Jesus Christ. They are dying as rebels against God rather than worshipers of God. If we truly worship God, then we will join Him on His mission. God has promised to rescue the nations. It's the promise He gave to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. This is probably one of my favorite things about this psalm, and I'm going to wrap up. The word families in verse 7. It's the same Hebrew word found in God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when he says, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's the same word. God promised in the beginning, as he was creating this people called Israel, that he was going to bless all the nations of the earth. He promised that to Abraham. And then he makes this temple, and it's a place where the nations could come and learn to worship God. And then he creates the church. And the church isn't a place, it's a people. And whereas the temple was a place where the nations could come and worship God, the church is a people who are supposed to go out to the nations and help them learn how to become worshipers of the one true God. And then we get to part of my my, my favorite part in the Bible, Revelation chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 7. And in Revelation 5, we find... The, the creation, we find the elders, we find the, the four living creatures around the throne, and they're singing this song, Worthy are you, they're singing to Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then in Revelation chapter 7, after this I look, John writes, and behold... I love this. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed, guess what, in white robes. Why are they white? The splendor of holiness. They're clothed in white robes, and they have palm branches in their hand, and they're crying out with a loud voice. All these nations, all these languages, they're crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Psalm 96, 2, tell of His salvation from day to day. Why? So that one day there will be many nations around the throne declaring to Jesus how glorious He is, because He has saved them from their sins. Here's the question. Not, is God going to do this? He is doing this right now, and He will do what He has said He will do. The question is this. Will we join God on His mission? Will we be a part of helping those 118 people groups in South Asia and the many more around the world prepare for the judgment of God by declaring to them the good news of Jesus? Missions exist because worship doesn't.
the more passionate we are in our worship of God, the greater our obedience will be to the mission of God. And as we participate in the mission of God and we see him rescuing people from every nation, tribe, and language, we will be moved to worship God, to sing to God with even greater passion and devotion. Maybe one reason our singing, and I include myself in this, isn't all it should be on a Sunday morning is because we're not living Monday through Saturday on mission for God. We must sing God's glory to the nations so they'll join us in worshiping the one true God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for meeting with us today. Fill our hearts with the praise of your name. I pray that our worship would overflow to the nations that people would be attracted to Jesus in the way that we sing right here in Abbeville and as you give us opportunities all around our world. Father, you are worthy of the worship of the nations. And it's only through Jesus that we can worship you. So help us to be on mission. Let that be our act of worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.